Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. With me this week, as always, is my co-host, John Tidy. John, are you feeling somber, responsible, and respectful? Absolutely. Of course I am. Of course you are. As well as a little <laughs> bit sleepy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, same. It's um, winter is settling in here with a vengeance. It's so, very uh, grey today. Oh, grey, cold, wet, all that stuff. Yep. Anyway, anybody who's seen the title of the episode will know why John has to be feeling somber, responsible, and whatever the other one I said was, um, because this episode is about the responsibilities and ethics of a mastering engineer. Um, something we haven't talked about before. I mean, we've we've kind of touched on it several times over all the episodes we've done but it's it's kind of at the heart of everything you know what is a mastering engineer's job what are your responsibilities and what's kind of right and wrong for you to do um as part of that so yeah we've got we've got a big list of topics um so we should probably just um dive right in the first one we have here is is it's the mastering engineer's responsibility to be an advisor to the client, what would you say is the thing that you get asked most often for, John, from the clients that you have to help them with? Well, a, a lot of people, they're just not sure if their mix is ready. And so the, they want a second opinion on it. They want tips, you know. They may be nervous about moving on with the, with the project. So, you know, your part of your job is to advise what things they can fix in the mix that you can't fix in mastering general things that they can do to make it better and probably tell them that they are doing a good job as well. And um, so for me, DSing often, maybe there's too much reverb on things and um, there's maybe some audible clipping or um, clicks and general noise that uh, is a lot easier to fix in their mix project. So there's that. Um, and then people aren't really sure about how to do the distribution. So they want some advice on like, how do I get a DDP? How do I do ISRC? Um, these sorts of things. Maybe they don't know where to release their music. So I usually tell them uh, if they're just getting started, just try Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I recommend Bandcamp several times a week. <laughs> Um, so if anybody listening to this doesn't know about it, you should go there straight away, bandcamp.com. It's just kind of seems to be the best place for, you know, the quickest, easiest way to make your music available, to set your own prices, for people to be able to download the format that they want. Mm -hmm. I think they have an embeddable player that works on social media, all that kind of stuff that you need. The site looks good. You know, you can upload the album art, all the rest of it. Um, Credits and, and everything. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's exactly. if you want to have control over it, I think that's the best way to do it. And and it seems pretty easy, maybe a little bit tedious to upload the stuff through there, adding in all your tags and everything, but it does work really well. And if you want to offer wave files of all your songs, then you can do that as well. So um, unlike, yeah. unlike uh, iTunes, which you usually have to go through an aggregator like CD Baby or uh, what is that other one? There's DistroKid. Yeah, that's the one, one I was thinking of. Um, there's also some kind of slightly hybrid ones. There's a thing called AWOL, which is kind of like a record label in the sense that you, I think you have to be accepted to get released by them. But I know several people who use them are really happy with them. So yeah, I mean, 
there are a bunch of different options out there, but yeah, we can kind of point them in the right direction. Uh-huh. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, ISRC codes, they're, you know, the right website to go, well, at least in the UK or the US, that's fairly straightforward to get those barcode numbers. People sometimes ask for help with, um, which usually can be got from the people who are helping with the artwork. If you're actually having CDs pressed and if uh-huh. you're not, then you probably don't need a barcode. Um, and and then also the, the, the file format that uh, they're going to deliver to you so you can do the mastering properly, you know, whether they should send stems or, you know, should they export at 96 kilohertz or any of those sorts of things. And I just always say export at the same format that you mix the song in. Um, then there's no surprises of plugins, you know, changing their sound or anything like that. Make sure that everything that you're hearing is what you want to hear in the master because it's, you know, I'm not going to do editing for you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Anything like that. Well, I, yeah, I will, but you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, well, I mean, it's not cost effective, is it? For, you know, if, if it's stuff that they can do themselves, then it doesn't make much sense for us to do it. Um, the, I'm going to go back quickly to what you mentioned about mixed tweaks. Just for me personally, I mean, sometimes you listen to something and you go, oh, uh, like you say, you know, it's, it's clipping horribly or um, the, piano is out of phase so when i mono it it disappears completely those kind of things kind of leap out at you as soon as you listen to the source but often people will ask for my opinion about whether something's ready for mastering and i i tend to be quite cautious about that because i find that quite often you can't tell we can't really tell until you actually get stuck in yeah um so then you have a bit of a you have a decision to make basically it's kind of either you're going to spend half an hour or so kind of messing around with a song getting a feel for whether it really is ready or not. I mean, if I'm doing a remote mastering project for somebody, I always master the first song or a song from the album for them first and send it to them and get comments. And we kind of go through that that initial, it's kind of like, you know, if you have a client come in and sit with you in the studio, you, you work for a bit and you say, okay, so what do you think? So that kind of bit of the process happens via email or however we're, we're talking to each other. Um, and if at that point something kind of comes up for me then i would go back and say okay i think we need to address this and actually now i'm hearing it maybe with that it would be worth doing on lots of the other tracks um that can work well providing there's enough time for them to actually do the mixed tweaks um but yeah it's you know sometimes if i'm feeling pretty confident then i'll i'll say yeah you're good to go and, and, and get started and sometimes i regret it because <laughs> little things kind of come out and uh, cause me problems later on i don't know How, do you find that or do you just kind of tend to listen to stuff and go yeah that's going to be fine or oh no I, i'm in trouble here i think i think I, I probably jump into it and and see if there's anything after i've you know kind of cleaned up the eq got everything level matched all that kind of stuff um, i think then the problems can be more easily heard and so mm. and you know just spending let's say an hour on the album can really help you focus on what what you can fix, what what's still bothering you, that kind of stuff, and then I'll just make a list and then come back to it a couple of days later when they're ready. So I, yeah. I, I'm not too worried about it usually, and I haven't been, have never been on a crazy deadline or anything like that. So uh, that's yeah. See, I have <laughs> often, <laughs> um, and that's the other thing is like yes, you can do an hour, but if you're going to spend an hour thinking about something and then you get back to the client and they go, oh, you know what? Actually, we decided to use someone else. That can be pretty annoying. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of a juggling act 
there, but I guess that's more of a practicality than anything else. Yeah. I think maybe we should cover some of the technical issues um, that we're responsible for as mastering engineers, and then maybe we could talk about the kind of the bigger topic, which is the the ethics, because um, I think maybe that's one of the most interesting things in some ways. Yeah. And I think we'll try not to spend too long on this just because it's the kind of stuff that we've talked about on almost every other episode of the show. Yeah. Um, but, um, and some of these have changed. So for example, I mean, the first one that kind of springs to mind for me is transferring the sources. Um, and these days, usually that means downloading a file yeah. from somewhere or, or a bunch of files or whatever it might be. But I mean, back in the day, um, I used to do a ton of work from analog reels, um, restoring stuff from vinyl or 78s, all those kind of things. And that involved a whole load of other responsibilities just in terms of of taking care of what you were being sent. You know, I mean, if a, if a digital download doesn't work, you can ask for it to be resupplied. Um, but if somebody sends you an analog reel and um, the edits break and it flies all over the studio and you get tangled up in knots, which has happened to me, <laughs> um, you know, that's a whole other issue. Or if, you know, if it's a piece of vinyl... Um, so 78, I, I actually would never transfer because you need the right stylus to actually get the best reproduction from it. And also you could even risk damaging um, the disc if you played it with the wrong stylus. We would always send 78s away to be transferred. I mean, these days, if anybody gets given a tape to be transferred, I would recommend you have it baked by a professional. Uh, you know, old tapes pick up moisture and the the glue can get sticky. I mean, it'll stop them playing properly, but it can also damage a tape machine and or the tape if you try and play it without baking it. So even the the brands that in theory don't need baking these days, I mean, it's a pretty benign process and it's it's a very good insurance policy. So to sum it all up, I would say these days, if you're given vintage sources to transfer, my advice is to pass that on to professionals. I mean, for me personally, it's not I don't think there's not enough demand these days for me to keep or maintain analog tape machines or even a high quality record deck for vinyl transfers. Um, you know, it's so rare now that uh, I just always get it done by somebody else. It's quicker, it's cheaper. Um, and, you know, you're kind of fulfilling your responsibilities by not taking those responsibilities on. So, I mean, are you ever given any, anybody ever given you a cassette to transfer, for example? No, I, I would just. I just wouldn't take the job. <laughs> I I don't want the equipment. I don't don't want the responsibility. So there's lots of other easier mastering jobs that I can take on. So I'd rather do those. I mean, it's interesting actually because you mentioned the responsibility there, and I've been talking about the sources. Um, I guess one thing we don't have on our list that maybe is worth mentioning is potentially you might need some insurance if you're going to be handling some any kind of materials from the client that could be uh delicate in any way or even you know that might get lost in transit it's worth considering whether you need some kind of insurance to cover you against those kind of losses i mean these days most people are working on digital files so it's not an issue but uh you know it's certainly i guess worth including in the list mm-hmm. um okay so you you have your sources you've transferred them to a digital format um not many people master 100 analog these days then, I mean, you, the next responsibility, I think, is to to listen to the source. Some people uh, dive straight in. Some people listen to a selection of songs from the album. Some people sit and listen to the entire thing from beginning to end before they do any work. What's your preference? 
I think I probably dive into it fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. I definitely start like with the level balance stuff, stuff that doesn't take a lot of thinking um, pretty early on. And then, uh, yeah, then I'm, then I start to, to listen, but I definitely reach for the EQ sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean, in theory, I, I listen really carefully before I start, but in practice, I just start getting itchy fingers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless it sounds absolutely spot on to begin with. I mean, I try and, especially these days where you see the waveform before you actually hear anything. Mm-hmm. If if I can, like, if, if, if the levels are all really high all the way through the song, the chances are it's loud all the way through. So it's probably not going to develop much in terms of the dynamics. But if you see a big change in the, in the waveforms, I will will try and um be patient enough to listen all the way through until I get to to the loud section you know um so you can kind of hear the full range of what's going on again back in the day when I used to work from tapes all the time you unless you were going to wind forwards you might as well just sit there and listen to it but these days we can skip around so you need to be careful you need to have respect for the material yeah um and and one of the kind of uh items we have here on the under critical listening is just having empathy for the material, you know, listening and understanding what it is that the client is trying to achieve, where they're trying to go, and then helping them get, that's kind of the job of mastering, is to help them get closer to that goal. You can't kind of dive in too quickly, I would say, but um, yeah, personally, I don't sit and listen to an entire album all the way through. I just don't have the patience for it. In terms, in terms of wanting to get, you know, wanting to start improving things. Because even if a song, let's say you listen to track one and it sounds great, but then track two is a couple of dBs quiet. I don't see that there's any point in listening to that two dBs quiet because all my instincts for it are going to be messed up by the fact that it's two dBs quiet. You know, mm-hmm. it makes more sense to bring that level up. And, and if it, like one of them has way more bass or way more treble, I don't even feel you're getting a, a true representation of the song if you listen to it with those, what are going to be inappropriate settings. Yeah. And through the course of that project, you're going to be listening to every song three to five times, you know, maybe mm. more as you're, well, well, often it's like, listen to the chorus a hundred times while you <laughs> tweak the compressor, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things. You'll, listen, you'll be jumping back through it and you're definitely going to be listening to this album for hours. I think listening to it and not jumping into your first instincts to do corrections could be the wrong thing because you can get used to the sound of it kind of being wrong. Uh, that's a very good point. And often our first instincts are the thing that's valuable, right? Yeah. You know, it's come from the client who's, yeah, got used to it and explained everything away. And if we listen and immediately go, well, there's not quite enough bass, that's probably how it's going to strike a ton of other people out there in the world either. So that's valuable feedback, something we're bringing to the, to the project. Working quickly is pretty important, I think. But also got to be respectful you got to listen critically and all all that kind of stuff so there's sort of like there's a there's a balance there we go we said it yep. we said it already <laughs> how many minutes are we in yeah it's, that's probably going to come up again that term but i think that's the um, first time we've we've talked about balancing attention and it's always it's always about eq balance or level balance so i think ba- balancing our our brain our focus and attention on that well, it's a balancing act, like we say, between respect and empathy and kind of our instincts for, for what the project needs, you know, and that ultimately is one of the reasons people come to us. Maybe the main reason they come to us is to effectively get our opinion about, you know, 
where the, the project needs to go. Um, balance also comes in in terms of the processing that we're going to use because you listen critical and then we, we've already mentioned it. You're going to adjust probably at a minimum the levels, the EQ, and possibly the dynamics. Um, and all of those are, to some extent, an, an exercise in balance. Um, and we've talked about those a lot in all the other episodes, so I don't think we need to go into that too much. Um, is this a good point to bring up how a lot of people will have kind of a default processing chain? They'll have various EQs and compressors and things like that, and they might not ever hear the song without that stuff. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody listening? It is your responsibility as a mastering engineer to not do that. I mean, you can have a default processing chain. I have a default processing chain, a, a bunch of my favorite um, processors for certain tasks that uh, I can, you know, I can just add them all to a new song that I'm working on as a kind of a workflow shortcut, but they're all disabled. Yeah. Um, and the first thing I do when I'm listening to is, okay, which of these am I going to need? and Which am I going to do first? You know, and, and so stage one is, okay, I'll increase the level with no other changes so that the loudness feels about right to me. Um, there may be some very gentle limiting happening, but that's kind of stage one. And then you think about EQ and then you think about dynamics. Running through a load of tubes and and uh, transformers right from the start is probably not a, a good responsible thing you should be doing. You know, by default, it should be doing nothing for the best ma master. I agree. There are engineers who would disagree. So let's come back to that in the ethics <laughs> section. Yeah. Um, the other thing in critical listening is just making sure that everything is consistent throughout the song, throughout the album, from one song to another should be consistent unless there's supposed to be a strong co contrast. Um, and then you, you know, maybe enhance that a little bit. But I think that's, that's, it's not too common to have one song that's totally different than everything else. Um, you're, you're probably going to bring it more closer to a baseline of the rest of the album. It's another one of my favorite topics and it involves the B word again. <laughs> I would say it's our job to balance the sound but not to match it. Yeah. It's like when we talk about consistency, uh, it, it feels, you know, some people think, oh, that means you have to make all the songs sound the same. And that's, I mean, you're absolutely right, not what we're doing, but you want them to balance. So if you have one song that kind of has a really aggressive distorted guitar sound in it, and then another one that is, you know, much more mellow and, and laid back, obviously you don't want those two things to sound the same, but they, they need to be consistent enough that they feel like they're part of the same album. And again, that's a, that's a pretty good definition for what mastering processing is all about, right? Is is to make everything feel like more like it's part of the same album. And again, it's a balancing act between how much do I bring these two different songs towards each other whilst keeping the kind of the different flavor that is obviously intended for them. This applies to a single artist on the album or a compilation. Absolutely. I mean, it, it can be even more challenging with a compilation, but also you kind of have a little bit more leeway you know, mm -hmm. in some senses, but yeah, there, are definitely... there is the expectation that different artists are going to sound different across that album. So it's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that gives us a little bit more rope. I did a compilation album fairly recently and it, it kind of had a lot of big EDM type stuff on there. Um, lots of bass, all, all the rest of it. And then it had some kind of much heavier guitar numbers on there as well. And I, I remember commenting to the client at the time that Possibly if they were on different albums, they would have sounded different, but because they had to sit next to each other, you know, the, the, 
the, the rock sound was maybe fuller and it's a little bit less aggressive and maybe the the EDM stuff, had, the bass had been reined in a little bit more than it might otherwise be. And that was just to get them to sit happily next to each other to make a, a good listening experience. So, and the same thing sometimes happens. You have different masters for, for a single versus an album. You know, the, you might do one master of a, of, a, of a single first, say, before the album comes out. And then when the album comes back, the tendency or the temptation is to think, oh, okay, that that's done. I can just slot that into the album. And actually, no, when you hear it in context with the other tracks, um, so there's a good word, context, right? It's you want consistency, but within the context of the album, what, what fits around it. And then the other um, aspect of all of this is to achieve translation. The goal of a, of a great master is that somebody can play it on almost any reproduction system and it will sound right to them. It's not going to sound the same if somebody plays it on an iPhone versus on a club PA, but it needs to sound right. It needs to sound the way they would expect for that genre on that system. Um, and that's something that mastering can help with. You know, if you, if there are big boomy frequencies in the bass that are out of control, then getting a grip on those and, uh, can make them, the, the song work better on smaller speakers, for example, probably also work better on, on bigger speakers where there's even more bass to be, to go out of control. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, everything that we do as part of the mastering process kind of helps achieve good translation, uh, almost as a byproduct or as a kind of a part and parcel of the process. So another quick one that is very common with mastering jobs is just to get the pace and the uh, the pacing between the songs correct. I always go kind of by feel, but it, I follow the tempo of the previous song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just tap beside my keyboard. And when I get to that point, I, I hit the button to uh, to drop the cursor in that position. So I tap that on beat, and then I'll usually put in a marker there, and I'll snap the next song to that, and I'll listen again without tapping it in and see if that flows correctly. So I usually want, yeah, I usually want, like, the first note of the next song or where the, the beat comes in to just... I find that that is the most... Uh, kind of foolproof way of doing it i don't go through and and you know tempo added tempo markers into my project or anything like that i i do it by ear tapping along and that's always worked and but it is one of the technical tasks we need to do it's something that you do need to get right and whether that means adding in silence shortening something it's it's something that needs to be done yeah i agree and i, I do it almost exactly the same way um usually it's usually a whole number of bars um uh-huh. And it's usually for me, I feel like it's a couple of bars, usually two bars, since you feel that the track before has finished. And the interesting thing is when you have like a long decay or a fade out or something, and the, the kind of the gray area comes as to where that is. It always amuses me when I'm working with clients. Quite often people kind of say, I don't care about the gaps, you do the gaps. So you go ahead and do it. And then they really care about the gaps. <laughs> then they really care. That's right. Because they're, they're either like, yeah, that's perfect. And I'm like, well, if you don't care, how do you know it's perfect? Or they're like, no, 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 that's wrong. And it's like, okay, so you do care. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and it's it's it kind of seems like almost a tiny little thing, but it can have a big influence. I think um, it does. It really does. And little things like maybe after a particularly long and intense song, you might choose to have a deliberately longer gap. Every so often, if you have, especially if you have, say, a song with a really abrupt ending, it can be really nice to slam in really quickly with the next thing. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you might want to suggest some kind of artistic crossfade between the two if if the client is open to that kind of idea it's it's something where you needed 
the song on its own to start correctly, but also it needs to work in context of the previous song when it's on an album. So it's not that tricky, but it's something that I do spend quite a bit of time on. It's halfway between technical and creative for me. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing that kind of goes hand in hand with it is just the refers back a little bit to the processing stuff we talked about in terms of the overall structure of the album. And we, we, you know, we talked about the differences you can have between songs. If, you know, it's an album where everything is just loud all the way through or everything is quiet and gentle, then that's not such a big deal. But if you have a variety of songs, I like to think about the overall shape. And sometimes this involves tweaking at the end because you don't get a sense of it until you've heard everything properly. Um, but it's like, okay, so if that's the high point or if that's the most intense moment on the album or if everything's building up to there, then, you know, how does that influence things? And that can affect the gaps. Um, sometimes all the gaps can affect the way that you feel about it. You know, you can kind of, you can build momentum. If you have, say, shorter gaps between two or three songs, that can add to the feel of feeling of momentum. Then, but if you go too far with it, then people could kind of end up feeling exhausted, um, because it's just too intense, um, you know, or every so often you have a long gap that seems nice, but it doesn't quite work. One other tip that I would give just on this um, that we haven't mentioned is make sure you listen to enough of the the song going out. The longer the song is, the more you need to listen to. You know, I mean, the stuff we've been talking about, you can usually sort of just play the last few bars and hear what the tempo is and where the song ends, and then you can kind of tap it out and decide, okay, I want the song to go there. But then when I listen again, I always go back further into the previous song just to kind of get a feeling of the flow and the the pace again uh-huh. and then it's down to milliseconds nudging sometimes well it can be or sometimes you kind of just think oh no that's a whole bar you know yeah. I, i've just made that too short or too long altogether yeah it's either um, like it's a whole bar or or it's like a millisecond that we're nudging yeah. <laughs> exactly and it but those milliseconds because because in the cases where the tempo is really tight uh-huh. a millisecond either way or can it's almost like running upstairs and thinking there's another step and there isn't one, you know, if, yeah. <laughs> if the song doesn't come in when you feel like it should, or if it, or if it comes in too early or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, gaps are important. And, and if the song order changes, if you're, if you do your first batch of mastering and they change the order of the song, then you have to redo all that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because everything can change depending on what just happened emotionally man which i mean but it's true it, it really can you know if they if they move the quiet reflective song before the really intense loud one then that completely changes possibly the way that you want them to flow into each other so um one of the things i like about mastering is that it's a it's a real blend of technical and creative um factors often and i think gaps is a perfect uh, example and I, I, I guess the main message is, is don't overlook them you know don't uh don't be tempted not to spend enough time thinking about them. I, I definitely spend more time on that than I do about thinking about which EQ to use. So absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, and and then even more time than that on how to use the EQ that I've chosen to use. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I typically, I mean, forty-five minutes to an hour probably to do the gaps on a you know on a on a full album. I would say. I mean, maybe not that long for me, but. I don't know. I guess, um, well, maybe that includes typing in all the titles and stuff, sure. um, which is our next topic. And so now we have some really dull topics that I'm just going to rattle through. <laughs> um, but, but song titles, album titles, artist names, uh, they are probably the most important piece of metadata that we have to deal with. Other examples include, we've already mentioned them, the ISRC codes, 
I mean, really quickly, if anybody hasn't come across those before, it's the International Standard Recording Code, I think, is what it stands for. Yes. It's a unique number. You get one per song, um, and you can have a code assigned to you as a, I think, as a publisher or as a record label or as a as a person releasing music anymore, an entity releasing music. And then there's one that relates to the year, and then there's stuff that relates to which territory, and then there's a number. Um and you can register for those. Um, we could put some links on the in the show notes at themasteringshow.com uh, for anybody who hasn't come across those. But um, usually they're free or pretty cheap, so um, they're not they're not they're, they're optional. But there's no harm in having them, and they allow your stuff to be identified automatically if it gets played on on air on radio, or I guess probably if it's streamed in some cases. So it can be a, it can help you get the royalties that you're owed. Barcode we mentioned only really applies if you're having physical artwork made. And one thing, I guess, briefly to talk about with metadata is the software that you use. Um, So one of the nice things about WaveLab that I use is uh, you enter all this stuff once, and then it can be automatically written into whatever you choose to export. So, And then you can even choose to batch export stuff. So for example, I might do the DDP image, which is the the DD the, the CD master format, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but then if somebody wants 24-bit files, or I mean I tend not to do them MP3s and stuff, but if somebody really twists my arm, then I could generate other formats as well. And the nice thing about WaveLab is that all of those things get written automatically into the files and you don't have to worry about them. So you, you know, you add them once and then you're done. So WaveLab is really nice for that reason. I'm not sure how many other pieces of software have that comprehensive as a port. Um, I'm in a, a Facebook group of mastering engineers and there was a big conversation about this last month or so with people chipping in and from what i saw there were only two or three that kind of had that really comprehensive support so if this is something that you're going to be asked to do a lot um as part of the mastering work that you're doing then it's definitely worth looking into um you know it could be a a a make or break as far as the piece of software that you're using because the, the last thing you want to do be doing is is copying and pasting the same stuff over and over again um that gets really boring yeah really boring well and, and there's a big risk of making a mistake that is something that i don't really spend a lot of time on um i export by i just export wave files 16-bit usually out of reaper they have the you know they'll have the artist and the track name and the track number in the title uh, when i bring it into Hoffa to do the DDP, I strip all that stuff down and convert it to metadata, and that gets put into the DDP. I don't go into um, like a metadata tool and manually add in all that stuff into the WAV files. I never tag MP3s other than this show. This show is the only thing I, I use for tagging, or I actually tag properly, because I know that iTunes isn't going to do it right if I don't do it. Okay. It's, I mean, it's an interesting, I mean, I try and avoid, like I say, exporting multiple formats. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people ask me for MP3s. I'm like, if you want to do that to your music, you can do it. <laughs> um, but, but if we're, if we're the, talking about the, like a Bandcamp upload, I think whoever is putting it up on Bandcamp is still going to have to manually type in everything, whether there's the metadata in the file or not. And WAV files don't really display, uh, that information depending on the player, that kind of stuff. So it's tricky. I think that's the big issue is, is whether, I think um, as in terms of, you could say that as a mastering engineer, it is our responsibility to make that sure that that information is, is in there and embedded correctly. 
or at least to inform the client if it's not. Uh Having said that, I wouldn't trust any distributor or aggregator or, like you say, player or piece of software to actually read that stuff accurately. I know for a fact that all of this stuff is embedded correctly in the files that are written by WaveLab, but I also know that there are several things that don't read it back correctly, and there are kind of different standards for doing it. So, yeah, the main stuff I would say is uh, the ISRCs and the CD text information, so artist, title, track names for a CD master. Um, pretty much anything else, probably, yeah, is going to have to be entered by hand later on anyway. But there are engineers who this is one of the important things that they offer as part of their service, and it might be that people listening, you know, this is something that you're being asked for. So obviously, in those cases, you need to get it right. That's yeah, you know, if if it's a, if it's important to your client, then it becomes an important responsibility for you, which I guess could be a common thread through most of the things we're talking about this episode. Um, Anyway, I said we weren't going to talk about metadata much, so <laughs> um, let's move on to yeah. um, the DDP. Probably the f- well, I was going to more generally making a master. Okay, um, you know, is is in some ways you could say that's the fundamental responsibility of a mastering engineer is to create a master. Um, and you know, over the years, back in the day, it was you uh, lacquers for vinyl uh, pressing or. Uh, dat tapes for cassette duplication with side breaks and all of these kind of different formats and i mean these days basically we're talking about a ddp image master that we just talked about which is kind of like a disk image format where disk description protocol that's what it stands for absolutely um so it's kind of like the the bin and q um files that people might have seen uh, they're less common these days but there's a big lump of audio data and then some other files that include all of the other information, like track starts and stops and all the rest of it, all kind of packaged up in a folder. It's it's the best format for distributing masters for CD manufacturing, partly because it can't you know it can't be messed with. Uh, most clients can't access them, um, so I actually supply a, a software player to my clients so that they can access the DDP. Um, but also it includes error correction built in. Um, something we're going to talk about again in a minute um and it includes all of that information that we we talked about um it might sound silly but all of the gaps are built in right uh-huh. it's you can't ever have some people if you give the a collection of files to somebody and they drag it into some cd burning software say um it might add default two second gaps in between all the tracks and if you've yeah. already spent half an hour to an hour sorting out the gaps on your CD, that's the last thing you want to happen. Yeah. They might also add normalization. I've had that happen before I knew about mastering. Burning a CD, it's, yeah, it'll start changing all the levels. I don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So with DDP, it's safe from those sorts of changes. Um, I should mention that um, whether we're exporting WAV files, MP3s, or DDP, part of our responsibility is to make sure that those things are actually what we want to send out. We want to check for clicks and things like that that might have happened through the mastering process from weird plugins. I said hope. Um, and <laughs> and Reaper can actually load a DDP and we can see the the waveform with markers for each of the track starts. So we can actually play it back. It's really nice. Yep, that's a good point. And is another reason, if you're going to supply DDP images, why it's good to provide instructions so the client can check all of that information because they need a way to check that like all of that metadata that we mentioned is there correctly and to preview the track starts and stops all of those kind of things yeah i agree 
So that's a DDP image. The other common format that we have to supply these days is just files. Yeah. Um, there's not a great deal to say about that, except that if you're being asked to embed metadata in them, you might want to make sure that happens. If you're exporting tracks that were part of a CD, you need to make sure that the export process is maintaining the same gaps between the songs. For example, if somebody listens to it online, they're going to hear it with the right gaps. That's not always 100% straightforward, so that's something to watch out for. But it's worth saying something about the online delivery formats. It's pretty much killed the hidden track, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. The uh, hiding a track in the in the countdown before the disc, so you have to rewind the CD from the beginning in order to hear the song. That was yeah. one of my favorites because that was really obscure. But yeah, the whole thing of like 15 minutes silence at the end and then a sudden track or... Mm-hmm adding in 99 empty tracks and stuff. Um, Yeah, it takes all the fun out of it, doesn't it? Um, But um, in terms of what you actually supply, I think probably the easiest way to say this is there's iTunes and then there's everything else. Um, Lots of the distributors and aggregators will say that they can accept files in any format, but there are quite big questions have been raised about what happens. For example, if you supplied a 2496 file to uh, distributor X or aggregator X and you ask them to press your CDs, how do they convert those files into 16-bit 44.1, which is what's needed for a CD? Same thing applies if it's going to go up online. Um, so my advice is right now, I'd say this is a moving target, but right now my advice is to supply everything as 16-bit 44.1. You know, do the sample rate conversion yourself, uh, do the dithering down to 16-bit yourself, because then it's all under our control and hopefully nothing weird will happen to it further down the chain, Um, except for iTunes, because I know that a huge amount of time and effort went in at Apple in terms of dealing with higher sample rate files and higher bit depth files. So I do have confidence that if you supplied 2496 files to iTunes, they would do the best possible conversion for you in terms of generating it compared to what people eventually get as a download. And I suspect one day when they start offering um, HD streaming, you know, your original file will come through in as pure a form as possible. So there are other distributors and aggregators who say they can accept the higher sample rates and formats i'm skeptical at this point about those and i guess then the other thing you have to consider is things like youtube um and i was reading just today a debate about what the best format to supply uh things for youtube was uh and again i think ultimately you know 16 bit 44.1 is going to sound fantastic for most people um and it's a decent compromise between file size and quality. Uh, and I think it's the lowest risk in terms of something going wrong further down the chain. Yeah, I agree with that. Cool. Uh, one other just special case is supplying, if somebody asks you or tells you that they want to have their stuff pressed to vinyl, in that case, depending on who you send it to, you may be asked to supply uh, one file for side A and one file for side B. And you may also be asked to supply track times. Um, lots of places you can just send them the digital files and they will figure that stuff out for you. But it does depend on the the cutting house that you're sending the stuff to. So make sure you check that out and be prepared to possibly have to supply timings. Do they ever accept DDPs? I can't remember if I've what I've sent for ma- for vinyl mastering. They would probably accept DDPs. Because um, you could do a second one with with just two tracks. 
I guess you could. Yeah. Um, interesting question. It's probably an extra hoop for them to jump through, to be honest. Um, I mean, it, depending on what software they're using, they could probably just import a DDP image. But what I was going to say was the other thing that people often ask for when they're terms of vinyl is they ask for 24-bit files instead of 16-bit um, and higher sample rate if they were originally recorded at higher sample rate. And also the other thing you might want to consider is, is not applying the final brick wall limiter. There's a disadvantage to supplying heavily limited files for vinyl. It get, makes it harder to make a decent cut and the cutting engineer may prefer to do that final limiting themselves. So this is a bit of a judgment call, I would say, for us as mastering engineers. If we know that the client is going to go to a decent pressing company with a dedicated engineer who's going to be there at a cut and listening out for problems, then I would be happy sending those files without the final limiting. But often that's not the case. And in that situation, especially if you're following my guidelines and not kind of doing super loud stuff, um, I would recommend just going with the limited version because, uh, you know, at the kind of levels that I'm suggesting people master at, you're not going to be doing anything horrendous to it. It's not going to have a huge influence on the sound. And you just, again, it's kind of confidence in knowing that nothing's going to go wrong further down the chain. So then the other thing that we have in terms of technical details, which is really dull, is shipping. <laughs> um, how do you get the master that you've produced to the client? And in most cases these days, it means an online transfer. It could mean a physical copy on a, a recordable disc or something that you put in the post somewhere. Um, nothing much to say about these, except you can't necessarily rely on either to work perfectly. So send two CDRs. If you're going to send CDs, yep, send two CDRs. And always make sure you explain to the client that we can't be responsible for that final stage. You know, up to the point where we send them that final master, we're responsible for informing them of any problems and fixing anything that we can fix. Um, but we have no control over whether that final transfer is going to occur cleanly. Um, I mentioned to John just before we came on air that there was one situation where I even had a zipped DDP image, which I sent, which unzipped correctly at the other end but still somehow managed to have a glitch in it, um, which wasn't in the files on my hard drive. So presumably that was some kind of random problem when the zip file was being created at my end. Uh, because usually a corrupt, if a zip file that's corrupted in transfer won't decompress, won't unzip correctly. Uh, one thing that you can do is most DDP software generates something called an MD5 file. An MD5 file contains a list of unique numbers for each file that you asked to have one created for, which can be generated when you send it and then can be checked at the other end. Even if one bit of the file that's been transferred is incorrect, the MD5 generated at the other end will be different. And that will tell the person who's received the file that there's a problem. What's supposed to happen is you send the MD5 files, they verify those, all the numbers come out the same and they know that all the files have transferred successfully and you move on. Most DDP software generates it automatically and most DDP software when you're importing it at the other end will then check. Um, so in WaveLab, for example, there's an option that says, should I use the MD5 files to check the integrity of the audio that I'm pulling in? So you probably don't need to worry about it in that case. It's being done for you automatically. But if not, or if you're sending individual files, um, that's a process that you might want to uh, look into. And we could put a couple of links in the show notes again for there's usually uh, free software or ex extremely affordable software to generate MD5 files automatically. So something that I, I think is kind of up for debate is whether the mastering engineer 
or uh, whoever did the mastering, if it's like the, a company or an individual, if they're responsible for actually keeping archiving projects long term, and if so, what format and and these sorts of things. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, so uh, I used to work for a large mastering company, uh, independent mastering company here in the UK, and we kept um, a safety copy, so a, a digital clone, um, in most cases a, a duplicate CDR of everything that we did. Also, an exabyte tape backup, so an entire project backup of what we'd been working on. It was a pretty, you know, those those took time to run. It was quite a uh, an investment of time and effort and a lot of storage for all of those because they you know they're quite bulky the the tapes and the the CDs they got used once in a blue moon i mean the safety copies were used the reason for a safety copy was if a query came back once the master was at the plant it enabled us to quickly listen to what we had which should be a clone of what they had so if they said oh there's a glitch at 3 minutes we could quickly check whether it was and if it wasn't on the safety copy we would just a new, do a new copy from the safety copy and send that and the the problem was fixed. And if there was a glitch, we could say, oh yeah, okay, you're right, we need to fix that. You know, that's kind of not necessary these days because chances are we will still have the files or I think I think at the very least we need to keep the files on our own system until the job has been pressed or released in some form so that the, the digital files exist in some form somewhere else. But in terms of those tape backups, I mean, probably out of the thousands of albums that got backed up, only a handful ever got kind of pulled out of the vaults and reused. When they did, they were invaluable and the clients were incredibly grateful. But we didn't actually charge extra and it wasn't part of the contract because if one of those backups would have failed, you know, we didn't want to be held liable for that. So I think, you know, you're right. In that sense, it wasn't a responsibility that we took on. It was kind of a free part of the service that we offered. And these days it's even harder because, well, except maybe it isn't. I mean, for me personally, I have a cupboard behind me that has a stack of old hard drives in it. So basically at the point where a, a drive gets full, you know, rather than wipe it, I just unhook it from the machine, stick it in the cupboard and um, buy a new one. Uh, now, whether any, I, I can't remember the last time I hooked one of those drives out to try and pull some old data from them. Nobody knows how long hard drives, I mean, this is an interesting question about backups. If you're going to do backups, what do you back them up to? Because I mean, we know that CDs can fail over the long term, the the die and the discs can break down and all kinds of stuff can go wrong. Tapes get sticky and won't play. What's going to happen to hard drives that have been on the shelf for 10 or 15 years or even longer? Um, you know, it, it is a a tricky question. I mean, for me personally, I also have automatic cloning of the hard drives. So twice a day, um, all the data gets... Well, it doesn't all get copied afresh, but the, the software checks for anything that needs an update and, and rebacks it up. So if one of the drives that I'm working with fails, I have an immediate backup. So, it, it, you know, backing up is essential, but I don't know whether we want to accept that as a responsibility to our clients. I feel like once it's released, you've delivered everything and the, the client has their version of it, they've released it. I feel like our responsibility for keeping it ends. I usually have the stuff for longer. It's their responsibility to back up their own projects. And uh, for me, that's kind of the first stuff that I delete off a hard drive. Uh, anything that's published, get rid of it. That's just my opinion on it. I think other people, I, I saw that um, Justin Perkins 
has quite a big archiving system. And for for me, I don't I don't see the the real benefit to it. You know, you got to pay for the electricity to run that stuff, and then you need backups of the backups. Maybe I just don't care enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it is it is tricky. Um, I mean, one good thing is that if well, I mean, I mean, once I it's say, released it's, online, then then you've already have multiple backups. You've got it on on Bandcamp, you've got it on CD Baby, you've got it on iTunes. So, you know, there's that, but... Yeah, exactly. And and once you've got a CD pressed, there's a thousand or ten thousand or a million CDs in the world, all of which are identical to the, to the original master. Yeah, uh-huh. I agree with that. One common scenario is that clients will come back weeks or months later and say, oh, can I have high-res copies of those files? So... I've done them a CD master, which was all that they needed in the beginning. But then they decide, for example, that they want to offer the high res files on um, HD tracks uh, or a website like that, or Tidal maybe have requested high res files, or they want to put the high res files on Bandcamp because their clients have been requesting them. So that's a scenario where you know, particularly in WaveLab, where you can just uh, you know choose to export in a different format. That's very easy, and you can only do it if you have access to the to the files. And I mean, the other thing is that typically a CD master doesn't take up a huge amount of space. You know, even no. I mean, even if you had twenty four ninety six source files, the, the total project size is probably only a few gig. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It it comes down to you know, it comes down to what your client expects and then um, what you're comfortable with. Uh, I even have hard drives from PCs that I haven't used for twenty years kicking around somewhere just in case I ever need to pull a file from them. So I think I'm a hoarder in that respect. Yeah. Um, but, I've got stuff from like 2006 still. Yeah. But like, I don't go. know what I have or where it is. No. <laughs> I know I have it. Exactly. Um, but that's kind of different than, I, I think that's a, you know, if a client comes back and says, oh, do you have, um, like there was one project where it was some Fleetwood Mac mixes of a an old, gig that, that had been done at the, the company where I used to work. Um, and that the the clients came back and wanted to release that, I think on DVD audio or one of these high res formats. And we were able to pull the files out of the archive and, and do that for them. And they were delighted with that. That's, that's a great situation to be in. On the other hand, I don't feel like unless you make some kind of special contract with the client that, oh, I'm going to archive this for you. You know, I don't see there's a situation where a client could come back and you say, no, I'm sorry, that's been deleted from the system. I don't see why they should be unhappy with that. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable. So, listen, we've been talking for ages and we still haven't tackled the, the real meaty topic, which is the ethics of being a mastering engineer. So, John, do you want to kick things off? Yeah. So, the first one, this is something that you've said a, a hundred times, but do no harm. I think that's really true. The One of the major responsibilities of mastering engineer is to not, you know, make it sound worse to <laughs> to mess it up to distort things without purpose mm-hmm. a lot of that comes it, it ties into the critical listening and the processing stuff that we talked about earlier but you know just make sure that when you're listening to it you're not changing the sound of it um, in any way that's going to negatively affect your perception of it or the way that you that you go about processing it I don't think you should run through tape and transformers and all these sorts of th- processes uh, that 
that can drastically change the sound without having first to listen to see if that stuff is needed. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree about that. Everybody listening to this probably knows that I'm really pretty minimal in my, well, not necessarily in what I do, but in the, in my goal. You know, the, the less I can do in some ways, the happier I am. But it's also interesting to kind of just think about doing no harm in a very basic level. I mean, the you know, we, we said that the, the kind of a fundamental definition of a mastering engineer is to produce a production master, a master that's suitable for distributing the, the music in whatever format is required. Um, in terms of making a master, I mean, you you need to not damage the source. So it's kind of trivial these days. If you get a digital file and you put the digital file into your software and you burn a DDP image, you would think that there was no potential for doing any quotes damage to that. But I mean, you mentioned if the software, I mean, if the software added gaps, right, that's changing the intention of the artist or the client. Um, if the files get normalized, as you mentioned, that's changing the relative levels. That would mess things up. If there was any kind of glitch um, because of an improperly copied file or a sample rate conversion, anything like that, any unintentional processing. And, you know, I often say that the minimum requirement for a piece of software that's suitable for doing mastering is that you should be able to import a digital file and then export it again and have it completely unchanged, like literally bit for bit accurate. And that goes right back to the early days when we would do what were called copy masters, where people would just send us, uh, say, a DAT tape, for, for, for example, that was had all of the audio, as far as they were concerned, it was perfect for what they wanted. And we always tried to persuade them to, to have mastering as well. But, you know, in some cases that wasn't necessary. And in other cases, people just didn't want to do that. Uh, we had to make a complete clone of that. And it was even harder back in those days because you had you know, different pieces of gear that had to be clocked correctly and all kinds of technical things that could go wrong. So yeah, there's that aspect of it. Where it gets a bit more, I guess, kind of debatable is what you call harm. Because, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, there are a bunch of mastering engineers out there who regularly push the loudness of files beyond the point where I would say that it was making the music any better and to the point where I would actually say it's making it sound worse they are completely comfortable with what they're doing and their clients are very happy with what they're doing. So there's a situation where actually what I consider to be harm, you know, not everybody would. I could imagine certain engineers would maybe add more bass or less bass or more top or less top or whatever it is, you use more compression or less compression. And any one of those things, another engineer might disagree about whether that was in the best interests of the material. I mean, I say that, but it's actually fascinating to me Ages ago, I was given a, a test master to do for somebody and I, I did the test master and, and sent it back and I didn't realise that they had already actually had the project mastered. So they were effectively just testing me out. Um, but I was curious to hear what the previous master sound, sounded like. And when it came back, literally, I mean, it was within half a dB in terms of level. The EQ was almost an exact match. There were some little minor differences in the dynamic processing that we'd used, but really, really close. And that's happened to me often in my career is to kind of, I mean, I just listen to some of the best work that's available at the moment. Like I was listening to the the new mixes and masters of the, the White Album by the Beatles that have just come out. And I don't agree with all of the creative choices that have been made on that because I know the original album really well. Um, and I don't agree with all of the mastering choices, but in general, you know, it, it sounds absolutely 
as I would expect it to. So there is actually a lot of consistency there, but also, I guess, you know, the people would have different opinions. You know, some people might use, I don't know, heavy stereo width processing or something because they felt that that was what was needed for the song. And somebody else might consider that that completely changed the mix and it was unacceptable. So there is a, a degree of opinion involved in there. Yeah, like, I personally like the sound of narrower bass, centered bass. Um, and I think for you, you generally prefer to leave it as it was, especially if you know that that was something that was intentional. So, and I know that a lot of people would, I know that a lot of artists would really hate or mixers would really hate if the bass got narrowed in, in the master. I certainly don't narrow the bass by default, you know, uh, nine times out of 10, it's down the center anyway. But, and, and if I hear a problem, then I certainly would address it. But I don't, yeah, I don't mind a little bit of space in the low end if that's what has been done and I think it works creatively. Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. And really, these, these kind of issues come down to the next uh, ethical responsibility that we have, which we've mentioned in passing earlier on, but is that idea of empathy for the goal of the artist or the, of the client, you know, that, that whole process of when you first put the, the source on and start to listen is resisting the temptation to dive in too quickly and just listening to it and going, well, okay, what, what is already good about this? You know, maybe these things that I consider problems are catching my attention, but maybe they were done deliberately or maybe there's a creative vision there that, you know, um, I need to respect. So it is that, that, you know, we have a responsibility to do the best we can to understand what the goal of the client was and help them get closer to that rather than uh, trying to take the project somewhere kind of, I guess, for selfish reasons, you know, in sense of, I mean, it's, a, it, it's another one of those funny balancing things where the reason people come to us is for us to have a vision of the project and to help get it closer to that. Um, but, you, but as we said before, you have to do it with respect for what the the artist had in mind. Mm -hmm. There's also kind of the perception of what mastering does or how it can transform a song. And so if someone's expecting a big change, you kind of have to deliver that. But, um, but I, I don't know necessarily if that is the responsibility or you know, fixing it in the mastering, if it's not ready for mastering or if it's not that great. So yeah, that's an interesting one because, I mean, I would actually, I'd push back against that a little bit in the sense that just because the client expects a big change, if a big change isn't needed, I wouldn't give them a big change. I mean, I think a big change can often, it can often feel like a big change from quite small moves. You know, mm -hmm. we've talked about that before, just it's one of the, you know, kind of slightly magical things about mastering is you can make what seem to be lots of tiny little changes and it has a, a much bigger effect on the overall picture. And if something needs big changes and those big changes work, then that's well and good as well. Well, there's also projects that come in that are mixed quite dark and and they're a little indistinct and they're quiet. So it, to get it up to kind of a normal sound, a normal balanced sound, that would be a huge change, even though it's, you know, maybe it's plus two at, I don't know, 6K and up on a shelf. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's overall 60 B of gain. Um, you know, maybe like 
that's two little things that you did, but it's going to completely change the sound of that mix. And if they wanted it dark, it, you would have to kind of make everything else dark or, you know, kind of split the difference with that. It's It gets tricky because people can get really attached to the sound of something. They might not know that it's too dark if they're not, you know, constantly using reference tracks and things like that. So I think for that, you, you need your first impression. If it sounds dark, then it's probably too dark. It gets tricky, and I guess that's why they pay us to do the mastering, to, to think about this stuff as well. Yeah, I think so. And I think communication is important when that happens because, so I regularly, you know, I mentioned that I'll I'll do, you know, master the first song and send it back to them for comments before I kind of commit the time to doing the entire album, just in case I'm not a good fit for the project or, you know, they have a different vision for it. Um, and if a big change has been needed, or if I perceive that there's been a big change, then quite often I will say in the email, you know, look, I've, I've pushed this about as far as I think it can go, you know, because I think it's valuable for you to hear that. But if you feel it's moved too far from the mix, then of course we can, you know, find a, a compromise in between. Um, so I tend to go with my instinct, but make them aware that, you know, if they disagree with that, that's not kind of, doesn't have to be end of the the road. Yeah. Um, the, what's interesting is very often when that happens, they come back and go, no, no, that's fantastic. Can we go further? <laughs> and sometimes I agree with that and sometimes I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of weird that somebody can have mixed something to the best of their abilities and it sounds quite different than the master I supply them. But then when they hear the master, they love what I've done. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I thought of while you were talking there was that it's also fascinating to me how, so I just recently did a, a mastering project um, and they were quite big changes. Um, I was adding quite a lot of bass, quite a lot of high frequency and and kind of dealing with some, quite a lot of build up in the mids. And I said exactly that to the to the client and they came back and they then suggested that maybe I'd gone a little bit too far in a couple of areas. Um, so I went back and listened and decided, yes, they were right. But when I actually came to make the adjustments, the biggest change I made in the entire album was, was, uh, maybe from, from a one DB cut to a half a DB cut somewhere. Um, and then they asked for a little bit more air. So I'd added, I think 0.8 DBs at 10 K or something. Um, and they came back and said, Oh, this is a little bit too far. So I edged it back and it was like 0.4 DBs at 10 K <laughs> or whatever. And those changes sound like they wouldn't make any difference at all, but they absolutely did. Um, you know, and so tiny little changes seemed to have a bit or did have a big effect on the overall impression. So it is yeah. um, kind of fascinating. I think uh, this is something that you mentioned to me that we should we should talk about. Uh, the, the question of whether or not you go to a particular mastering engineer, engineer for a particular sound. Uh, you know, there are engineers out there who are famous for getting super loud records and people who go to them expect to get that um personally i don't have i mean i guess well i don't like super loud masters typically um and i do like space and clarity those are two words that i keep you know those are two things that i'm always working on a kind of a typical mastering job for me might come in and i might feel that it's a little bit muddy a little bit kind of cluttered and you know i want to open that out and get the space and the the, the separation in there but I don't think that counts as a sound because you could compare two or three albums that I've done even in the same week and one of them might sound darker or brighter, you know, depending on what the original source material like. They've all come closer to each other than they were originally, but I haven't made them sound the same as each other. So I don't feel I have stamped my sound 
on them in that sense. And then the other variable is what is appropriate for the material, which relates to the the empathy thing, I guess. But, you know, we have to be sensitive to the genre. It's our responsibility to understand the genres that we're working on, to understand the different ways of approaching those. You know, I mean, just in terms of metal, for example, you know, there's there's massively loud, incredibly distorted metal, and there's super clean, incredibly almost clinical metal, you know, and mm-hmm. those neither one of those is right or wrong. They're just different areas of the, the spectrum within that genre. You know, it's no good trying to make all the metal we do super loud and distorted or all of it sound super clean and uh, polished. You know, it's it's all about what's right for the material. And I guess, you know, if you're talking about things like restoration, it's what's appropriate for the material of the time. One of the first things I ever did was, we talked about 78 recordings earlier on, was kind of restoration on some stuff that had come off of old discs. And the first master that I did, I just, I left all this high end in there because for me, I felt like it was bringing something to the material. And uh, the the engineer who was kind of overseeing my work at the time kind of came back and was like, no, you know, that all that is is noise and crackle and stuff. You can pull that right back. And actually it will sound closer to the way the material originally would have because none of that would have been reproduced by the equipment that the recording was originally made on. Um, you know, and that's another situation where you're balancing things and trying to figure out what's appropriate. So it's, it's definitely a kind of pretty complicated topic. So, so at the end of the day, it's, it's all about serving what the client wants. This is a service that we're offering. We're not the artist in most cases. So we need to do whatever is right for that project and whatever they need us to do. Yeah, and this is another thorny one because you know, we've been talking about everything up to this point has been what we think, right? And the client brings it to us. But you're right. At the end of the day, it's their music. If I send back that first master and they kind of go, well, uh, I can hear what you've done there, but no, um, we have to accept that. Yeah. Now, the and, and that's fine. I can think of several times that's happened to me over my career. I guess the, the trick, the tricky part is when the client wants to do something that you think is completely inappropriate. Actually, one example that wasn't completely appropriate, but that springs to mind is I did an album of stuff by Matt Johnson, who was in the band The The. Um, and after being in the band, he left and did a load of soundtrack work. So we did, it was an amazing thing. From memory, it was maybe like 40 or 50 different kind of really short extracts from all the different film and TV soundtracks he'd done over the years, all kind of edited into this one long sequence. It, sadly, it never, ever got released. I, I tried to get hold of a copy recently and t- took a look on eBay, and it cost about £160 um, to get a copy. So I, I'm not sure I want it that badly. Um, but it was a really fun project to work on. And one of the tracks he wanted really heavily distorted. Um, and this was a long time ago. These days, analog saturation and all the rest of it is, is kind of a pretty fashionable thing in some areas so people are more geared up to do it but back then it was all about uh being clean and transparent and invisible and all those things that i talk about a lot and he kept encouraging me to go further and further and further with the distortion more and more aggressive sound and i i was kind of uh, not sure about this in the end he then called up a couple of days later and said you know what you were right let's back off of that slightly um so we did go back the same way but i was happy to do that because it was a genuine creative request for musical reasons that's fine with me but if somebody wanted me to do 
a really kind of overcooked sound for an entire album where I didn't think musically that it worked, um, for example, then I might be less comfortable with that. Or I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's, there's, there's maybe a boundary, right? The client is right, as far as I'm concerned, until the point where they actually start telling you to damage, you know, until, until they say, okay, I want you to cross that do no harm barrier. And that for me is a difficult place to be. And that's the kind of point where I say, well, you know, honestly, I respect your opinion. If, you know, if, if that's the way you want to go with this, absolutely, that's your right. But for me personally, I'm not really kind of, that's not going to, I'm not going to enjoy that creatively, you know, and you, therefore you're not going to get the best result from me in that situation. Cause I'm always going to be kind of pulling back and, you know, I'm not going to be completely on board with what you want there. So maybe you should talk to somebody else about getting, and actually, I mean, I say that I, I can't really think of any examples where that's happened. Usually the issue would be loudness. And and that's something that I address really early on in, in the, you know, one of the first questions I ask if it's somebody I haven't worked with before is, you know, what kind of sound are you looking for? Where are you going? And how loud do you want this to be? It doesn't really usually come up in the actual mastering process. But there was one client who, it was an attended session and he was really unhappy about the effect that the, the compression and limiting that I was using had on the, the material but he he definitely wanted it to be louder. And I said, well, look, the only thing I can do in that case is is to clip it, right? We tried soft clipping. He didn't like that because it added distortion. Or, I mean, clipping also adds distortion, but he didn't like the sound of the soft clipping distortion. And we, we had a big conversation about it. And in the end, I did what he asked. And I actually, you know, it was very spiky, transient stuff. So what digital clipping there was, it wasn't destroying the material, you know? It was... Uh, I felt like it was musically acceptable and I took a lot of time to explain to him what was happening and why I kind of didn't agree that that was the right approach. And that was the decision he went for. And all we did was then was edge back the overall level a little bit so the red lights weren't coming on. Um, now, there are engineers who do that all the time in order to get extreme loudness. This wasn't to get extreme loudness. It was just to get it as loud as he wanted without any other kind of artifacts from the, the process. Do you think you would have approached that the same way now? This is the thing, you see, it's a different, yeah, I think so, because, because, you know, he wasn't, I guess the problem I have is where clients are going, no, I don't care, just make it loud. Yeah. Because that to me doesn't feel like an educated decision, right? I, I don't feel like they've, whereas with him, I felt like he completely took on board what I was saying. I demonstrated the differences between that, you know, I even pointed out a bit where we could hear a little bit of kind of that, that fizzy, gritty clipping distortion sound. And he was like, yeah, okay. You know, I understand what you're saying. I'm comfortable with it. I prefer that to the sound of the limiter working really hard. Um, I mean, I say really hard. It was only three or four dBs yeah. of gain reduction. Um, but, you know, that the alternative to that is three or four dBs to, of clipping. So I, mean, I think that's the only time I've ever done that. But because it was in a direct one-to-one -one conversation with the client, I kind of felt like, okay, he's he's asking for this with his eyes open. And whatever the theoretical objections I had, it wasn't kind of damaging it musically so on that occasion you know i kind of went along with it and i could i could see myself doing that again if i feel like it you know it's a i don't know about a wise decision but at least a a justifiable decision yeah by the client i i think today we have things like loudness penalty that can help kind of educate our uh our clients but we're still going to run into situations where it's like yeah, that doesn't matter. Like, you know, this is my reference mix. It's 4 dB louder than what you've mastered. So 
make it 40 be louder, that sort of thing. Whether their reference is way overcooked or not, you know, if that's that's the sound that they want and and we kind of have to do it. Yeah, and it's something that I hear other engineers. I mean, again, I it's not that common for me because I I usually will take a pass on the project early in the process. It does come up late in the process, as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It can, yeah. it can crop up all over the place. And but but there are other people who other mastering engineers I know who I talk to and, and who I greatly respect who have this issue all the time. And actually, you know, that when they point out what they consider to be the detrimental effects of the the loud sound to their clients, the clients go, yep, that's exactly what we want. You know, the the, the clients would even be happy if they got that sound and then turned the whole thing down (laughs) because they want the, you know, the the crushed or the distorted or whatever, the kind of the the flat, highly controlled, however you want to talk about it, positive or negative terms, that, you know, there is a sound to that style um, and that's what they wanted. That's a really difficult situation to be in. Or at least, you know, Maybe it's not difficult. You know, there's some people who kind of just go, yeah, okay, if that's what you want, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, for me, it's difficult. But if I feel like it's not in the best interest of the music, which I almost always do. but I, I have had things where I've made it sound too good. Yeah, I've worked on, I've worked on uh, some projects where I've actually had, you know, kind of emails or conversations with the clients where they're like, okay, you're going to put this on and it's going to sound bad to you. It's meant to be that way. You know, that yeah. the whole point of this genre is for it to sound uh, insane. In fact, I'm not going to be able to remember it now. There was a, it was a, it was one of those core, something core <laughs> genres okay. um, that somebody sent me and I had never heard anything like it. It was, so it had an, you know, it had an RMS level of zero. In fact, I think maybe the RMS at some point got higher than the peak level, which typically only happens with square waves. So, you know, that gives you an idea of exactly, and it sounded bizarre to me but it was apparently intentional <laughs> did he pass on that one or what, like what can you even do it wasn't a master it was just uh, i was talking oh, okay. to somebody and they said they they, they they was they kind of said hey do you know about this and sent me a link and i was like i just kind of sat there with my mouth open going no i didn't <laughs> and i kind of wish i still didn't cool <laughs> we have a note here about use appropriate tools what did you mean by that that came from your comment where i think you said use the very best tools or words to that effect. Um, and I read that and I thought, yeah, I agree with that. And then I kind of paused and I thought, but actually, you know, what are the very best? You know, what does the very best mean? Does it mean the most expensive? Not necessarily, because the, the most expensive is not always the best. You know, does it, and, and what is the best? It depends on what the goal is, right? You know, if you, if you want a super clean result, then the very best tool is one thing. But if you want a kind of vibey, coloured result then the very best tool is something else i think part of it is just knowing your tools really well and maybe not using vca compression when you should be using whatever else yeah well i mean that's why i changed changed it from use the very best tools to use appropriate tools right because i absolutely you know i absolutely agree i would say the tools need to be capable of achieving the very best results Right. So, so I guess you could say use tools that are capable of achieving the very best results. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have, you know, compressor X or EQY or limiter Z. Um, but you need to be completely confident as a mastering engineer. You know, I mean, as a mastering engineer, something we haven't said yet, we could sum all of this up. In fact, let's do that. 
if you want a mastering maxim for this episode, I would say it's make it sound the best it can be. Make the whole thing be the best it can be. Sound the best, you know, appropriate format, the right metadata, everything as good as it can possibly be. That's that's the role of the mastering engineer, right? If, if there are any faults, you inform the client, you offer them solutions to fix them or give them the chance to fix them, all this stuff. It's all just about making sure, because we're the final stage in the chain. You know, some people might think it's weird to have an episode called Responsibilities of the Mastering Engineer, but actually it's a very responsible position because with the exception of that final upload, transfer, whatever, to wherever it's going to be manufactured, we're probably the last people who are going to hear it. I mean, the client needs to check the master to sign it off, but you can't necessarily guarantee that they're going to do that carefully enough. You know, there have been masters in history that have gone out with faults that the clients haven't spotted. Um, so yeah, if our job is to make it the very best it can be, that means we should not be working on stuff unless we're completely confident that the tools that we have available to us, you know, unless we know that our monitoring is good enough for us to pick out if there's 20 hertz rumble or if there's uh, clipping distortion that is right up in the super high frequencies. Um, we need to know that we can hear whether a particular instrument in the mix is out of phase um, or, you know, the left channel is half a dB down. And then we need to have tools that we are completely confident in that we can achieve uh, corrections or enhancements, whatever you want to talk about it. You know, all this stuff that we've been talking about has to be done to the highest possible standard. Now, that doesn't mean you need the most expensive gear in the world. I mean, just as an example, recently Softube released some plugins which absolutely accurately emulate hardware that used to be made by Vice. Um, there's a compressor, I think an EQ, a DSer, limiter. The plugins are a fraction of the cost of the hardware, but they're just as good because they do exactly the same thing. Um, the technology has changed and it's available. So, and the same thing applies all the way through. The best or the biggest mastering houses in the world have rooms that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to put together and speakers that cost uh, more than a family car and all the rest of it. I'm not saying that's not necessary, but it might not be necessary because if what you have is good enough to achieve the results you need to, then you don't need to have invested that huge amount of money. And to further prove that, we had that conversation with Glenn Schick, who masters everything on a laptop and headphones. And, you know, his stuff is on the radio. His stuff is, is selling really well. So and number one in the billboard charts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, their headphones that cost thousands of dollars. <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's that's a, that's a perfect case in point. For him, the appropriate tools are the laptop and the headphones and then whatever, you know, plugins he has running. And yeah. I mean, the same thing's true. There's, there's mastering engineers out there who swear by the analog chain that they have. And who actually do the exact opposite of what we were talking about earlier. They they genuinely do put almost everything through the same processing chain because that's part of their sound that they bring to the project. And that's what their clients go to them for. Um, for them, that's the best solution. Whereas, yeah, there are also engineers who master entirely in the box or, yeah, on a laptop with headphones. Yeah. I, I think this whole discussion is important because anyone can do mastering now. and for a lot of people, they start out mastering their own things and then they start getting clients because people like what they sound like. And then they run into these things because they hadn't thought about them. They don't know what the mastering engineer should do. They just know how to get from A to B. They don't know, they don't know anything about metadata or they don't know anything, 
about transferring properly or archiving if that's something that they want to do for people. So yeah, that, that's one of one of the reasons that hasn't come up yet in this uh, conversation of why I wanted to do this show. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty good point. I guess somebody listening to this might be thinking, well, they're just kind of lecturing me about stuff that doesn't really matter in the real world. And maybe it doesn't in nine out of 10 jobs that you do. But I, then one day you'll get, you know, the project from somebody who has uh, an analog reel of, you know, their dad in a band that he was in in the 60s that they want to give to him as a present. Um, and they want to clean it up as best they possibly can. And suddenly there's a whole load of factors that apply to that that might not apply to the other material that they're working on. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. In a in a world where anybody can be a mastering engineer without actually knowing what that is or what a, quotes real mastering engineer would do, yeah, I definitely think there's value in just making people aware of... And I mean, you know, most of the issues on this might not ever bother, you know, if lots of people listening to this are going to be mastering their own music, right? So mm -hmm. they've got no one to answer to but themselves. Um, and whatever they say is right goes. And that's fine as well. Um, but I still think it's interesting and valuable to to consider all of these different responsibilities that we have, because you have to have respect for your own music as well, even if that's, you know, even if you're not actually working for other clients. I think it's and that kind of sounds weird when I say it, but I've had clients come in who kind of, you know, they say, to you, oh, this is a load of rubbish, you, you're going to hate this. <laughs> um, I mean, A, that I, I make an effort for that not to be the case. It's like one of the ways that I work is to always try and find something that I like about what I'm working on. If I'm going to work on it, I need to be enthusiastic about something. But also, if somebody has put time and energy and love and care and attention into what they're working on, how could it not have something great in it, you know, that, that deserves to be celebrated and uh, would benefit from uh, that final bit of TLC. Yeah. So I, I think being as aware as we can of all the different aspects of this is, is definitely valuable. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, thank you for suggesting the topic of the episode and putting together the original outline for it. Uh, I apologize for expanding it as much as I did but I, I think there's plenty of uh, things in there that people will be interested in yeah and as I said I, I think this was an important episode for us to do the original idea came from our conversation with Jonathan Weiner and it was a phrase that he used in that conversation so that one phrase turned into a one big ass episode <laughs> yeah absolutely and I mean I mean you were saying that your last point that, that some people may not have thought of some of the issues i mean this was the kind of stuff that i was uh taught on day one as a, as a trainee you know in, in a mastering house um you know it was at the very least you need to be able to do a perfect copy and you need to spot faults and, and all the rest of it so it, it definitely is an important and interesting topic so yeah thanks again and th thanks for mixing and editing the show as always mm -hmm. thanks to kaylee law for letting us use his music if you enjoyed this episode, um, please head over to themasteringshow.com. Uh, drop your email address into the, the sign-up box there to be notified of new episodes. Head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And please tell your friends. Leave a rating or a review to help more people find out about the show. We really appreciate it. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.